official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. How are you doing today? Okay, how about this? How are you yesterday when it was like 80 degrees out, right? Or the day before even was even nicer. So uh, I just got back from a little bit of vacation. So I got a little bit of sun and you're welcome. I brought some back with me, but there's nothing like home, right? And so it's glad to be back. Uh, My wife and my family and I were in Hawaii. I know. Sorry, everyone. Uh, We're not going to complain about that. I actually grew up in Hawaii and so I was kind of like going back home. And then it's also nice coming back home from home as well. So it's a little bonus. But there's nothing like being back home, and there's nothing like being back home with the church fam. Can you turn to someone around you and say, hey, fam? Hey, fam. Yeah, just, it's just good to be here in this room with all of you. I love you guys. Uh, and as Adam mentioned, uh, this is our 17th week in the book of Acts. 17th week. And we're coming to Acts chapter 16 this morning. And I think it's, it's been such a joy going through the book of Acts, learning what we can learn through Scripture and from what we see the earliest followers of Jesus and their community looked like and how they were led by the Spirit of God and the miracles that followed them and how the church was strengthened in their faith and numbers and how the gospel was preached and how Jesus was reintroduced. It's just been an invigorating time, I think, for our church. And at the same time, there's been a lot that we haven't been able to cover, right? We haven't been able to go in depth in every verse, and we won't be able, as Adam mentioned, to cover in depth every verse moving forward, but we're going to continue moving forward. We have a few more weeks in the series. We'll be wrapping up on Memorial Day uh, weekend, but Just because we haven't covered everything in depth doesn't mean that we haven't been able to go deep as a church community, right? And so I I know that this series has been challenging, comforting, uh, and also has been a really great opportunity to be reintroduced to Jesus and what the earliest community of his followers looked like as they organized in what we now know as the church. And so we're coming to Acts chapter 16 this morning. And I know over the past couple weeks, Adam has given you some maps. So we could go through another more maps today, but we won't be. How many of you are map fans? It's okay. Oh, whoa. How nerdy are, I'm always surprised by how nerdy our church is. How many of you celebrated May the 4th be with you? Or the return of the 5th on May 5th, right? Yes. So we are a super nerdy church, but uh, rather than giving you some maps on the screen this morning, I wanted to give you a brief roadmap because we're actually covering the whole chapter 16 this morning. I want to give you a roadmap. As I mentioned, we're not be able to go in depth with everything, but hopefully we're able to go deep this morning. But I wanted to give you a roadmap in a sense of the different topics we'll be covering because Paul is traveling and he's moving with a group of people and it's a narrative. And so all sorts of things are happening, but we're going to take a few pauses throughout and talk about some things. And so we're going to be looking at Paul and Timothy's relationship and the importance of of mentorship relationships in a community of faith, and also the value and the importance of having a church that is multi-generational. 
we're going to be looking at the surprising nature of spirit-led decision-making. Y'all already made a bunch of decisions today. You decided what to wear. You decided if you're coming to church or not. Uh, I'd say you're a good-looking bunch, and so you've been following the Spirit's lead in that. So we're going to be talking about plurality of leadership, the importance of having a group of people lead the church, not just one person. And we're going to be spending most of our time looking at the second half of Acts 16 and talking about this idea of redemptive suffering. And so I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to it. And so we're going to read through the first five verses of Acts chapter 16. This is in the NIV translation. If you're following along in your Bible or your Bible app, you can select NIV, and it's on the screen for you as well. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Everyone said, ouch, because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Speaking of Acts chapter 15, and so the churches were strengthened in faith, and grew daily in numbers. What a great thing to say about a church, huh? Something uh, that should be a continuous prayer for us here at Church at the Wall. Now, I want to stop here before we continue reading because we're introduced to a person and a relationship that is really important in the New Testament. We're introduced to Timothy, who we begin to realize develops an important relationship with Paul or the Apostle Paul, we see here in this moment here in Acts chapter 16 that Paul and Timothy, they begin to develop a mentorship relationship. Uh, Eventually, Paul refers to Timothy as my true son. And so there's a deep bond that these two shared. Uh, And and this relationship is, is also important because two of the books in the New Testament were actually letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in Ephesus, and Paul would wrote him these letters to encourage him in his ministry and to speak to the issues that were relevant to his church community, mentoring him not only, as we see here in Acts 16, but also being a mentor to him through writing. And now we have records of those letters in our New Testament, in the Bibles that we hold in our hands, or we keep in our phones, right? We have record of those letters that now are there to encourage us as well. So this is an important, all that to say, this is an important relationship. But I stop here and bring this up because I believe that this relationship between Paul and Timothy, I I believe that it points to a value. It points to the value, uh, the tremendous value that being a multi-generational community can bring to a, a community of faith specifically or a church. And it speaks to the value of having a community where those who are mentoring and those who are being mentored. How many of you agree with me that is a good value to have, being a multi-generational church? How many of you want to be a part of a multi-generational church? How many of you uh, see the value of mentoring and being mentored, something that's important to have in the church? Yes, it's all of us, right? But it can be very elusive, 
at the same time, right? How, how many of you have ever found yourselves in a work situation or maybe a church or, or a leadership position where you have craved a mentorship relationship, specifically being mentored, but also some, some of us might find it a hard time looking for someone to mentor as well. But how many of you have ever found yourself in that place? I know I've found myself in that place in numerous times in my life, and it, it can be elusive. But I pause here because not only do we see this as something that's important, or this is an issue that comes up in the text here, uh, but I want to point out a simple character trait that, Paul, that I believe Paul and Timothy shared that allowed this bond of mentor and mentee to exist between the two of them. And so this is a simple character trait, but I believe this is the the character trait that allowed them to thrive in this relationship was that each of them saw their individual role in the church or the community or the body of Christ. Each of them saw their individual role in the body of Christ or the church only in its context of service to the whole. Only in context of service to the whole. So this was the posture that they carried with themselves. And we we learned this from what we know of them in Acts. We also know this of these two people from what we read in the epistles and throughout the New Testament that they each held this posture. It was never about their role. It was always about their role in the context of service to the whole. And I believe this. I believe that in a community, Paul's will find Timothy's and Timothy's will find Paul's when each realize that their, their individual role is connected to the service of the whole. To the service of the whole. And so often you'll see Paul's missing the Timothys or Timothys wandering without true leadership when the goal of mentorship or the goal of being mentored is to gain status. Or as one who is mentoring, is, uh, you could say, is uh, the, the wrong perspective, the wrong take would be, Look at the type of leader I can build, which then that person just becomes an extension of that other person's ego, right? But then Timothy is on the flip side when the goal is not to serve, but when the goal is to gain status, then the Timothys end up wandering without true leadership. And so the character trait shared between them is service. And so this can flesh itself out practically in a church community where it just starts with not what can I gain, not what type of position am I looking to get, what type of status am I looking for, but in the community, this is fleshed out with a question, where can I serve? Where can I be helpful? Where can I put these hands to work in service of the whole, right? And it's in that space when we have those postures that Paul's find Timothy's, Timothy's find Paul. So moving on to verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Imagine if I just lost my voice and the Spirit was keeping me from preaching to you. This is a peculiar thing that's happening. And it says, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus using a synonym for the Holy Spirit here, would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas during the night. 
Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. I won't get into the weeds here, but there's an indication that the author of Acts, Luke, is with Paul here in the narrative, which is why the narrative changes uh, from first person, from uh, third, per, third person to first person. Uh, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so, what can we learn about this peculiar... How many of you would agree that that's a peculiar thing, that Paul was going to preach the gospel, and it says that the Spirit refrained from letting him do that? That's a peculiar thing to do. Um, There's a peculiar thing to happen. So what can we learn from this, from this narrative? And I, I think we learned something, one, about a, a character trait that Paul had or a perspective that Paul had in Christian mission and what it meant to follow Jesus. And because I'm a preacher, I'll give you a catchy phrase for this, right? Paul had a go until you get a no attitude. Paul had a go until you get a no perspective. Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go. Go into all the earth, make disciples, proclaiming everything and teaching them to obey all that I have taught you, uh, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul took this commission seriously. And I wonder if we, as a church, as a people, as individuals, ever miss God or miss the purposes he has for us because we stop when the circumstances look insurmountable. What, what, what this scripture teaches me is that a life led by the Holy Spirit is never fear-based. It's never fear-based. It never lets the circumstances or the situation dictate the path forward. I'll, I'll, I'll say that again. What this scripture teaches me is that a life led by the Spirit is never fear-based, never lets circumstance situation dictate the path forward. And here's the good news in this that we see in Paul, because he does get a no in a couple of these circumstances, right? You can't get ahead of the Spirit of God. You can't get ahead of him. He's already leading you. And so there will be times when you try the go and you do get a no, but you have to go. I believe this. I believe we can miss the purpose God has for our lives, where the Spirit might be leading us if we let our circumstances or if we let our fear determine our movement into the future. Now, we might not know exactly what the future looks like, the future that God has for us, right? There's all sorts of uncertainties involved with following God, but there are certain certainties that dictate the path forward for the follower of Jesus, right? We know this. We know that he has called us to participate in the future that he is building. God's kingdom. May your kingdom be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We know the type of future that God is building, one that's redeemed, restored, and reconciled, and so participating in that. We know that. So we know the type of future that God is calling us to participate in building. We also know who we are called to be, which is children of God, right? 
And we know, we know who we are called to, which is the world, right? All people, all nations, every tribe and tongue. And we know for what purpose we are called to them for, which is to invite them into this good news story, that there is freedom in Jesus. It's to invite them to know the good news of who Jesus is, the good news of God's love and salvation, right? And so there's lots that we do know, and there's lots that we can take with us in our going, right? We know we're called to be participants in the future that God is calling. We know we are called children of God. We know that we are called to the ends of the earth to share this good news story with the world. And so we go until you get a no, right? Amen. Can I get an amen? Quiet church is a dead church, everyone. About, that's actually about nine years now. I was, I was just wrapping up college. I was studying theology, and I was praying about where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And I had a few options set for me. I knew I, knew I wanted to particip- be a participant in a local church to be planted. I know I wanted to participate in ministry. I was studying theology. And uh, I spent a significant amount of time fasting and praying about where God wanted me to go. And I bring that up, saying that I was praying a significant amount, not to say that I was super spiritual or anything like that. God knows that I could use more prayer, more fasting in my life. But I bring this up because it was true. In this particular situation, I was praying and fasting a significant amount. And this is what I heard from God. Yeah, you got it. I'm not eating. <laughs> I'm praying. You give me something. And so I found myself in a situation where I had to make a determination on what following Jesus looked like in this next stage of my life. And I'll tell you how I came up with that determination. Vermont was one of the, the places that was on the table. Adam had just planted the church here in Burlington, and I knew that was one of my options to come here. And I kind of laid them all out, and I looked at all of my different options, and I thought, Vermont's probably where I could be the most helpful in this next season. And I came. And the beautiful thing was, is one, I didn't get a no. I knew God would give me a no if I was making the wrong choice. But upon making that decision, God began to send confirmation after the fact. And so God has given this, uh, us, one, the Holy Spirit in us, but we also have scripture and we have these promises that I already speak of that can help us and aid us in this, what can be the surprising nature of spirit-led decision-making. Sometimes it's not super spiritual. There might be fasting and prayer, but you might just get silence, right? Sometimes uh, you're thrust into a situation that you don't, didn't expect to be thrust into as well. How many of you have been to Canada so now you need, like many years ago, you didn't need a passport, but you need a passport to go to Canada. And I, I was going to Canada once, I forget why, but I was, I was by myself and I was at the border and I had my passport in the glove compartment. It's kind of where I keep it. You probably shouldn't keep your passport in your glove compartment. It's not a safe place. So y'all can help me with that another time. Keep me accountable. Um, but I had previously gone to Canada with a friend and what my friend had done is he, he took my passport and put his in the glove compartment. 
And so I was at the border, and I pulled out the passport, and I gave it to the guard. And the guard looks at me, and he says, this is not you. And I'm just wide-eyed. He's like, do you have your passport? And why do you have this other person's passport as well? And I, I was trying to explain the situation, and they put, put me in detention. Not like serious, they just let me, let me sit in a chair, and they made some calls, and they called my friend. He confirmed that he did have my passport. And they, uh, they're like, okay, you can go. And so I got in my car, and I started driving, and I realized I wasn't quite sure what they meant by go. Like, go into Canada, or like, you can go, like, you're, it's okay, you're going to go back, you can go back to the U.S. And so I, I stopped, and I walked back to the border. I said, when you said go, what, do you mean like into Canada? Because I was a little nervous about coming back, and they're like, yeah, you can go into Canada, or else we wouldn't have said you could go, right? So I went into Canada, and short, long story short, I came back in, and the guard looked at me, and he said, don't ever do that again on the U.S. side, and he let me back in. But I was thrust into a situation where I had to go, and I didn't want to be in it. It made me really nervous. Moving on. <laughs> I didn't get a no. I got a go, but I wasn't quite sure I wanted to go or wasn't quite sure what the go meant. So, verse 9. Uh, I want to point out one more thing from this, path, from this portion of Scripture. Amen. Amen. I love it. <laughs> so notice in verse 9, Paul receives a vision of a Macedonian man pleading for him to come to Macedonia. And this becomes the inciting incident that then leads the group to actually go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. But I want us to pay attention to some of the language in verse 10, other than the fact that it communicates that Luke is perhaps with them on this occasion. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We got ready at once. We concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Now, this is just a short little insight, but Paul received this vision, this inciting incident that then moves the group to Macedonia but the vision is confirmed by the group. The vision's confirmed by the group. So a word of warning, a sole word, a singular word, singular teacher, a, sing, a singular prophet, you might say. Be wary if it's not confirmed and affirmed by the we, by the we. And so this is a value that we hold to here at Church of the Well. In the New Testament, you see that group, uh, that church governments are structured around uh, groups of leaders who make decisions, not just one person, not just one pastor, not just one minister, one apostle, but there are actually groups uh, that refer to them as elders in the New Testament. So we actually have elders here at Church of the Well. We don't call them elders. We just call them our vision team, and they're comprised of staff and non-staff members and they're meant to be representative of the whole community and making vision decisions moving forward. A little bit of a plug for our partnership party. Next week, you'll be able to hear a little bit about our vision and some things we're looking forward to and also be able to participate in the crafting of that vision together to make your voice heard as well. And so it's going to be a great time. Please 
go to that, I, I just would encourage you to do that. So we have, we have uh, everything, even though Adam might have the title of lead pastor, or kind of the visionary voice that leads that group, it's all, all the direction is affirmed by a group of people, never just one person. And also as a church community, we also have other we's that are important to affirm. We have the we of Scripture, right? Scripture can affirm decisions moving forward, right? So we, every, every decision a church makes should be affirmed by the we of Scripture, should be affirmed by the we of church history, the, che- the teachings that the church has upheld throughout 2,000 years of its history. And we have the we, of course, of local church government structures as well. And we have the we of procedures and processes that we see in the New Testament. Now, that should bring us comfort as a church. That should bring us comfort as individuals who come to serve, who come to get planted and rooted in a local church, that something's not run by one person, uh, but there's actually a, a group that moves the church forward. Things aren't decided haphazardly or without thought. So let's move on to the second half of Acts 16, moving down to verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. In the Greek, this is the, the actual Greek word. is She had a spirit of Python. It referred to the oracle at Delphi, which was in this area, who was said to have fortune-telling powers. Uh, it was, it was uh, uh, and she, so it says she was have the spirit of, of Python. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, we're telling you the way to be saved. So what she says is on the base level, true. These are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Pastors can get annoyed too. That's what we can learn from this path. Pastors can get annoyed too. He, actually, in the Greek, it's not only annoyed, it's kind of like disturbed and distraught. So there is more empathy there as well um, in the original Greek. He turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. So there's an exorcism that takes place. At that moment, the spirit left her at the name of Jesus. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates. They don't bring up the real reason why they're upset. They say, these men are Jews. So there's, there's uh, racism and anti-Semitism taking place, we see in this passage, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. It's not brought up that Paul is in, and Silas are, in fact, Roman citizens. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, this is the context, beaten, flogged, imprisoned, shackled. That leads up to the verse that Adam read in our call to worship. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God, peculiar. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword, about to kill himself. He thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Both are washed in different senses, right? The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly. Paul is, one thing you might begin to learn about Paul is Paul was really smart. He was intelligent, educated. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. This is when the alarm bells start to go off for everyone. Oh no, what have we just done? And threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I I love this. The officers reported to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them, escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters, and encouraged them. Then they left. Then they left. There is so much there. There's so much there, and I don't want to take you here until lunch or all the way until Abby's book release party at one even. So I want to focus in on just one thought here as we conclude this morning. This last portion of the narrative takes place in Philippi. Now first, Uh, this is kind of an interesting thing that you could do, is to think of this narrative the next time you read the book of Philippians. Next time you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, think of his perspective that he puts forward in his epistle to the Philippians and think about what happened here. And pay attention specifically when he talks about suffering in the book of Philippians. So that's a side note. But what we also see here is what I like to call is this idea of redemptive suffering in action in the life of Paul and Silas. In verse 25, the verse that Adam wrote, Paul and Silas worshiping after being beaten, flogged, and in prison. And there's this reality that Adam brought up in his call that there are those listening in to our lives. They're tuning in to our lives. Whether or not we're in prison, 
whether or not we're in suffering or not. And the question that God has for us is, can God bring redemption even to that suffering in my life? That suffering in my life. So Paul, and I believe this, Paul and Silas were able to worship at midnight, in that midnight hour. We all have different types of midnight hour suffering in our lives that they were able to worship because they understood a couple key things about who God is and about what he's up to in the world. Paul and Silas were able to worship because they understood that Christ was with them in their suffering and also because Christ was revealed in their suffering. This is spirit-filled suffering. Not because suffering is ever glorified, but because Christ is revealed when we can glorify God in our suffering. That is spirit-filled suffering. The goal as a follower of Jesus is never suffering. It's not a masochistic religion. The goal is that God would be glorified in all things and that Jesus would be made known and that people would be set free because they're listening in. And that's a peculiar type of peace to have in the midst of suffering. And if you can be free in that suffering, if Paul and Silas can be free and they can worship and they can sing hymns in the midst of suffering, then maybe I can be free too. Maybe there is something to this Jesus in all things, including suffering. Now, this is never as easy as it sounds. Glorify in my suffering. It's never as easy as it sounds. It's important for us to have a theology of suffering. Or in other words, theology that informs how we process suffering. Few things we see in Scripture about suffering. Christ is with you. Christ is with us in our suffering. Christ is for you in your suffering. Also, we're reminded of that of Christ on the cross, right? Christ is with you and Christ is for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to the cross. Christ is with you, Christ is for you. Also, that suffering doesn't have the last word. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that whatever suffering we're going through, even the pinnacle of suffering, which is death, right? Doesn't have the last word. Jesus' resurrection is that in the middle, in the midst of our suffering, that that suffering, that pain, that shackle doesn't have the last word. It's important theology for us to hold. Christ is revealed and Christ is glorified. Some of that is a mystery. So I won't pretend that I can explain all of that. Listen to what Paul says of his suffering, this type of suffering in his letter to the Philippians. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, speaking of his suffering, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident 
in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Philippians 2, he says, have this same attitude that we see in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Then what? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name's glory through suffering. So when we suffer, we witness, testify Christ, Jesus. This is redemptive suffering. It has the capacity, and this is the beautiful thing about it, redemptive suffering has the capacity to break down barriers between us, the us and them that exist in society, right? The ultimate embodiment of forgiving and loving your enemies. Jesus' commission, forgive and love your enemies. It has the capacity to set others free. But often we're also set free in the process, right? Listen to what, what Paul writes again in Philippians. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me, suffering, will turn out for my deliverance. Others are set free, and in some mysterious way, we're also set free in that process as well. A story that's been in the news over the past month or so. How many of you remember or saw this a few weeks ago when there was two black men in Philadelphia who were arrested in a Starbucks? Arrested for no reason. They were accused of loitering because they were waiting for a friend to arrive before they ordered. The police came, arrested them unlawfully. Um, and this has obviously made the news because it was on video and things like this just go viral right away. And so we all kind of heard about this scenario and Starbucks had the issue public apologies and the city of Philadelphia was, now had this you know, cloud over why, why did the police arrest these men uh, without due cause. And something, a couple, a couple, something we found out something a week later was that these men filed a lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia. So there were accusations in the media, right? Well, these guys are playing the race card. They're just looking for money, right? Now, this past week, the lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia was settled by these two men. They each settled for $1 each. $1 each. So maybe they weren't in the money in, in it for the money after all. But instead of asking for money, which they probably could have done with the right lawyer or the right law team of lawyers, they took a dollar each in the settlement with the promise that the city of Philadelphia would donate $200,000 to young entrepreneurs in, the, in their city. It's a very practical example of what redemptive suffering could look like. The whole world's watching. Your neighbors are watching. Your friends are watching. Everyone's watching us when we suffer. It doesn't mean it's not okay to be angry, to shake our fists, to have doubt, to feel the depth of that pain. But there are also 
we need to be reminded that Christ is with us, Christ is for us. Most of us will never be beaten, flogged, thrown into prison for our faith. But I've also found it's not very helpful to compare our sufferings, right? Not very helpful to compare our sufferings or measure our suffering. We all feel it. And when it's midnight in our lives, it feels like midnight in our lives. We're not thinking about what midnight might have been for someone else. We all feel that. And that's why we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded by the community of the faithful that Christ is with us, Christ is for us, that this suffering in your life doesn't have the last word. It doesn't have the last word, and that somehow mysteriously Christ is revealed and glorified in our suffering. And we're allowed to be participants in that revealing, in that glorifying, which is why we can worship in our pain. That's why we can worship in our midnight, right? And again, amen. Amen. Christ is with us. Christ is for us. Suffering doesn't have the last word. That pain, that addiction, that broken relationship, that sickness doesn't have the last word. And so we're going to appropriately conclude this morning's worship gathering with worship and singing and praise. And so I'm going to invite the band up and I'm going to pray for us as they do. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the peculiar way that Paul and Silas processed suffering in Acts chapter 16. God, it challenges me. God, I pray that myself and that us as a church community, that we would be able to process suffering in a similar way as Paul and Silas. Not to ignore it, not to pretend like the suffering doesn't exist, but to name it and to be able to glorify you as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit in all things, even in our suffering, God. God, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, empower us as individuals to speak words of life to one another. When there are those who are suffering in our community, help us to remind them that Christ is with them, Christ is for them, that this suffering does not have the last word. And help those of us who are in the middle, in the midst of our own suffering today be reminded that your spirit is with us, that Jesus on the cross has purchased our peace, our salvation, our grace now, and it is available to us today, God. And so I pray that your supernatural grace, provision, love, peace, shalom would invade our hearts today. And may you be glorified through our lives, glorified in how we suffer, glorified in how we thrive. God, may you be glorified in the wholeness of who we are and in the wholeness of what we experience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 